0: There's a lot of innovation around healthcare, but the way we move around medical data, let's face it, it's tedious, it's manual, it's outdated. But that's changing. The technology at the center of that change, both in the US and abroad, is the API Application Programming Interface. On the outside, API integration seems like an easy way to add new functionality to older systems, to allow different services and platforms to talk to each other. But the truth is a little more complex, and that complexity is causing many to come out in opposition to healthcare IT modernization. But why? Upgrades, more agility, more features, those are all good things, right?
1: This is Compiler, an original podcast from Red Hat. I'm Brent Semino. And
2: I'm Angela Andrews.
1: We go beyond the buzzwords and jargon and simplify tech topics. Today, we're taking a closer look at APIs.
2: This is one episode of our series on legacy technology. To listen from the beginning, start from the episode in defensive legacy.
1: Let's see what producer Kim Wong has for us.
3: The way I think about it is that APIs allow systems or applications to talk to each other, to communicate amongst themselves.
0: That's Jamie Beckland. He's the president of Context, a company that specializes in API security.
3: And really, I think the elaboration of APIs has created whole new categories of what software can do, how it can work together, and how it can sort of be componentized into microservices and also expanded to do much more across functionality.
0: APIs allow different applications or services to integrate and share information under specific conditions without the different teams involved having to know how these services are implemented. They're kind of like an agreement or a bridge between different pieces of software. Most people don't think of APIs as legacy software, but they have been around for quite a while, around three decades. At that time, they would pass information between mainframes and be local to the systems they were operating on. Today, they are how most people encounter older systems and older programming languages. The interface might be different and modern, but it's still that older software underneath the window dressing. And since old systems are still pretty common, APIs are common too.
3: People interact with APIs probably most of the time without realizing it. Today, API calls represent over 75% of all internet traffic. It's the majority of the internet, right? If you think about any service or any system that you're using through a browser, it's going to be built on top of a bunch of APIs. Every app that you have in your phone is built up of a bunch of API components, So really, almost every experience that humans use on the Internet is built and managed through APIs.
1: What? Did they say 75% of all Internet traffic?
2: Mm, Yes, that's huge. I thought it was Beyonce, but you're telling me it's APIs? (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) Software eats the world. APIs
0: (laughs) eat the Internet, I guess. Yes. So I want to talk a little bit more about the proliferation of APIs like, over time. This is something that has been kind of like this fast development, this rapid development. I mean, APIs have been around for a while, but the the use cases for them, specifically in tech-heavy areas like social media and banking. Think about when whenever you go on Facebook Marketplace to buy something, or whether you you know you have uh, you know integrations on your social media platforms to make a purchase, or to go you know to have it integrate with a, a personal calendar or or another app that you
2: use. Those are all made possible with APIs. Okay. So APIs are the goat. They're what's out there. They're making the internet run. (laughs) We wouldn't be able to do a lot of things without APIs. Right. That's true. And
0: this is starting to become really essential in different industries, like I said before. But for this episode, I want to focus just on healthcare, how API integration is being used to update the infrastructure in healthcare systems especially when it comes to the matter of sharing patient information between providers. How healthcare IT is structured now, how it's always been, right, and how most of our listeners will understand it, is that when you go to your doctor and say you want to go to your doctor and then go to a specialist, well, that specialist has to have the same information that your primary doctor has. How do they get that information? Traditionally speaking, they would get a fax. Right? You would have to fill out a form using <laughs> uh, these devices called pen and paper. And you would have to use a fax machine uh, to send this information back and forth between your primary doctor saying that this other uh, healthcare care provider has your consent to have the same information, or the same patient data as your primary doctor in order for them to you know,
2: treat you or do their job. I think it's funny that you said used to. Mm, Still do. That's true. They They still do. do.
1: Still do. 100%. I'll do you one better. Yeah. I very recently hand-carried paper medical records from one medical office to another one and a CD, a Mm, (laughs) CD-ROM with images on it. Those
2: images, yep. Oh, wow. We've come far, but... We this was all, not that long ago. This is not all long ago. Come far, yeah. No, and those
0: situations are extremely common, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. But where are we going now? So, in the last few, I would say, the last decade or so, governments have kind of stepped in and said, "Surprise, surprise! This is not very efficient, and we want healthcare, you know, to kind of reflect the different changes that are happening in technology and other, you know, other industries like banking, where you don't have to carry." A shoebox full of your receipts from one bank to the other, or you know, uh, for for context. Um, but what what we have in place currently, and this is this is the product of many years of work, is something called health information exchanges, mm. and that's at the state level. This is mostly pertaining to the United States. These kind of exist at the state or regional level to handle the movement of patient data back and forth in the form of EHRs, electronic health records. So. Brent, you're your hand carrying the files. This is kind of the equivalent of that.
1: Mm, OK.
0: But for a variety of reasons, some we'll talk about today, it's still very difficult to move patient data between doctors, hospitals and other healthcare providers. Mm-hmm. This is called interoperability. So we'll use that word moving forward. Now, the 21st Century CARES Act a U.S. law that was passed in 2016 requires the ease of movement of these records by the end of 2022.
1: Well, it's 2023 while we're recording this. How how is that it working sure out for us, is,
0: Brent. How we doing? <laughs> Let's just say things are in flux.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, I assume this is like a very
2: challenging,
1: and complicated technical problem. In addition to sort of, like, legal and privacy and all, all that, you there know? There you
2: have it. Yes.
0: And I want to bring it back to APIs because yeah. these there's so many different, you know, parts of this, like you say. But, like, why are APIs such a huge component of this type of modernization? I spoke to Bober Amrizakov. He likes to be called Tiger. He's a developer advocate who works with the Apache Foundation, and he's written extensively about APIs.
4: APIs can be modularized uh, in such a way that different people can work on one API, another team can work on another API. That gives more flexibility. Instead of like completely replacing the old system, uh, as a developer, I can use APIs to bridge this uh, sort of gap. And then I can step by step move my uh, the big legacy up systems uh, by migrating to the APIs, not immediately so that I can allow new models, can talk to other new models through so the APIs easily. That makes transition to modern technology smoother, right?
0: You have people who are very, very eager for this to be a new normal, where people can just mm. you know, move their electronic health records, their patient data from one place to another very easily. So it seems like it's the cure-all, right? Yeah, it's it a cure-all for legacy systems with the ability to change the user interface, add new functionality for the user themselves. It all seems very ideal, picturesque.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I feel like there's a bug coming.
2: Uh,
0: you know it is. <laughs>
2: I'm just waiting for it.
0: But it's more complicated. I, there, there it is. is. Than that. Yes.
3: What we found is that there's a huge business imperative to add APIs into our existing services and applications. And oftentimes that push has caused teams to move really, really quickly. And when you move fast, the risk is that you break things.
0: We'll find out more about what Jamie's talking about when we come back.
1: Hi, I'm Mike Ferris, Chief Strategy Officer. I've been a Red Hatter for about 25 years. And before your episode starts, I want to talk a bit about AI. The hot topic right now is foundation models. And those are important. But at Red Hat, we see them just just a piece of the larger AI infrastructure. And here's what I mean by that. Enterprises are built of hundreds or even thousands of applications. It's not hard to imagine a future in which those applications are being served by hundreds or thousands of models. Without a common platform for your data scientists and developers, without a way to simplify some really complex workflows as you train, tune, serve, and monitor models, it can get overwhelming pretty quickly. And that's why we've built Red Hat OpenShift AI, a platform where everyone is working together on the same page to build and deploy AI models and applications with transparency and control. Find out how at RedHat.com.
0: Where we left off, Jamie was telling us about the complexities of using APIs for the exchange of health data.
3: You know, where a more open understanding that there's a value exchange going on between the user and the social media platform or between the media company and the advertiser, right? There is an implicit understanding from the consumer that part of the opportunity to get something is that they're sharing some part of themselves, but that's not the case in healthcare.
0: Mm. So we're thinking APIs are very useful for, let's say, buying something off of a social media platform or having all of your different applications integrated with each other if you want to share photos if you want to Mm -hmm. have things integrated with your personal calendar but this isn't the same thing this isn't apples to apples right this isn't the the same thing as buying a t-shirt this is a person's medical history it's very deeply personal information that they probably don't want to share with anyone else.
2: Exactly. Mm -hmm. So these are two different ends of the spectrum Mm -hmm. where we put information out there easily, freely, no one cares. But when it comes to something so personal and so intimate, your medical information, that has to be handled with a higher level of scrutiny, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I guess the question is, Are APIs the actual solution for said thing? If we're so used to using it in this really open way, when we're talking about something very closed and secure, Mm. this does not seem like the same thing.
0: Yeah, you and I are on the same kind of wavelength about this, but here's Jamie again because he goes a little bit more in depth.
3: When we're talking about PII, personally identifiable information, citizen data, patient data, when we're talking about the data of individuals, there is already an expectation of privacy. And we've seen, I think, in the last five years, a huge explosion in awareness from consumers about how at risk you know, their online information is. So when you take a step back and you look at where this landscape has led us, if you're a bad actor... You sort of go where the easiest target is. And APIs are the easiest target today. Mm.
2: Wow. Yeah.
1: I can see that. I can totally see that. Yeah? Yeah.
3: And it's
2: almost if we're talking about such private data and protecting, there are laws in place to protect people's medical information and PII. Yes. So I always go back to the old adage, it's not um, if you're going to get hacked, it's when. That's right. And how do you mitigate against putting your business in the street like that? Yeah. How? And again, I think it has to do with
0: where we are as a technologically advanced society and where we are with our relationship with technology, right? There's so much risk that we're okay with taking on. Yes. But this does not apply to that situation. This crosses the line. None of us are willing Mm. to take that risk. And APIs, unfortunately have already become a huge target for cybercrime mm. because they've become so ubiquitous. They've proliferated to the point where they're everywhere. According to a 2021 survey covered in VentureBeat, 94% of the respondents that they talked to, cybersecurity professionals, experienced security issues related to APIs that year. Wow. What? <laughs> Thank that you. That is a lot more yeah. than
1: I yes. <laughs> was expecting there. Is this are APIs such a big target for cybercrime is that because of just the nature of APIs that they allow you into systems well i think it's
0: because it's like they're they're integrated with these systems they're kind of like think of them as kind of like a go between right yeah. so they're they're allowing two applications to talk to each other yeah so you know, it think of it as like a bridge between two islands. What's the most vulnerable point of that? Mm. You know, that relationship is the bridge itself. Mm. Good analogy. And then you add patient data into the mix. That's That's a goldmine. mine. That's a it's a recipe for something uh very disastrous that a lot of people really wouldn't be able to understand the the consequences, the ramifications of right yeah. away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bober points out the compliance issues, which is what, Angela, you were talking about a little bit, uh, the compliance issues of the APIs and the scenario of one system failing while the other system is trying to access the data through the API.
4: The APIs are uh, like still the the one of the best approach to go to some modernization, but you need to uh, consider this modernization comes with uh, responsibilities, like responsibilities, which means uh, like uh, the, another API, uh, let's say with health system or uh, with government systems, the both APIs should be uh, communicable enough. Uh, otherwise, like if one system is not reliable, if the system fails, you cannot uh, get the response on time.
0: When Bober said that to me, I I immediately started going through. Like life or death scenarios in my head because that's really what mm. a lot of healthcare care is, right? It is a lot of times emergency situations or life and death. if you if the person that you're working on or the person that you're you're doing, you know, you're responding to an emergency, the person that you're trying to administer care for has a pacemaker. But you don't know that or the person has a certain type of allergy, but the information, the health data that has that information, that EHR, is not readily accessible because one system failing, the the API's there, the API's working, but one system fails while the other system is up. For me, and maybe I'm just sensationalizing it a bit too much, but I can't stress enough that this information that we're talking about, these EHRs, they contain information that is very sensitive to our very lives.
1: And you bring up an interesting point here, Kim, because it's like we obviously want to be concerned about privacy and security. And at the same time, we do want people to be able to access it when they need to access it. Like the right people. The right people. Bingo. The right people.
0: Mm, Who are the right people, though? Yeah. Who does that? Who decides that? Does the government decide that? Does the hospital decide that? Does your... The, the primary doctor decide. It, it's a lot of very, you know, very big questions around around health data and who needs to know and who doesn't need
2: to know. Exactly. Just because you're in a hospital and you have a log on to this system are there role based access controls in mm. place that says you can or cannot access this data how are we segmenting it off and that's just another level of security mm. but it's also another level of complexity because maybe you can or should have access to patient x but not patient y or whatever i mean i don't know i'm just saying like knowing who should have access and taking it a step further, you know, if you're a patient not in a particular hospital, but your information is a part of this health system or it's trying to be accessed, should you be allowed to access it? Like, where are the, the guardrails? Where are mm. the rules that says right. who can access what, when, and why? Yes. Jamie talks about this a bit,
0: too.
3: When we think about data transmission, we think about a several core concepts what is the data itself so is it you know mailing address or is it personal health information test results has the subject of the data appended any constraints are there any legal constraints you know what are the constraints around this data sharing and then what can that data actually be used for
1: Mm-mm. just like what what is the data itself right. Who's requesting it where is it going
3: mm-hmm.
1: and who can who can read it
0: <laughs> yes and something as dynamic as someone's, you know, doctor visits—something that can be very, you know, like it, it's not static; it's very dynamic. If you have children, you have a pediatrician, you have all these different specialists and things. You have dental care, you have vision, you have. There's, you know, our healthcare. I guess I would call it like a healthcare data portfolio. <laughs> the the ecosystem of the portfolio is very complex. So. The simple kind of, you know, who needs to know is actually quite a big question and quite difficult to decide hmm. when it's constantly changing.
1: And I imagine leads to a lot of fights.
0: Yes, exactly. This is at the center of many a fight in the United States where healthcare providers and patients, too. Are protesting modernization efforts because those particular guardrails are not expressed mm. or they're not clear.
3: Mm.
0: And those guardrails, those standards are vital, especially when you're talking about people's personal information.
3: It's also part of the reason that having open standards around healthcare portability, around other regulated industries, financial API access, you know, it's Part of the reason that these communities have come together to say, look, this is how we're going to interact with each other to make sure that we're all operating from the same rule book. And therefore, we're not going to have any sort of unintended consequences.
2: Really? Yeah. Technology is interesting. There's always unintended consequences. Yeah. You cannot successfully run through every use case. With all the Q&A in the world, yeah. there may very well be some unintended consequences. You know, it's not a feature, it's a bug, or it's a mm. bug, not a feature. It depends on how you look at it, right? So I'm, I'm interested in seeing that it's good that you do have standards. There should be a framework around how our data is shared. Yeah. But we do have to be very careful about the, the ability to access it, how and where and why. Like, those are the big questions. And if we're relying on company A or health provider A to be responsible for their end of the deal and then health provider B is using this system, you know, software as a service, whatever you want to call it. And how are we testing it? Like, yeah. Nothing makes me nervous. Like, you know, you we're on social media all the time. We're <laughs> posting photos. We're doing all the things we probably shouldn't be doing, but we're doing them. <laughs> but this is the one thing that is going to continue to give me pause. Mm. Yeah. Because this is something I don't think we should rush into for the sake of, well, you know, we have to get this data out here. As there's the Cures Act in there. We have to do this by a certain time or date, you know. And I'm really interested in seeing where this goes because— Yeah, This is all the marbles, really.
1: Well, this is reminding me of something that we've talked about on the show before, which is that technology doesn't exist in a vacuum. That's correct. The technology that we're building as technologists intersect with the law. It intersects Mm -hmm. with social issues. It intersects with uh historical issues you know it's like it's all kind of like embedded and knotted up within all that like it it exists within all of these different contexts and um i just lost my train of thought
2: catch the next
0: one (laughs)
1: well
0: you know what that was actually a really good segue because bober who's done like i said a lot of writing on apis he identifies three important factors in building an api Problem, people, and context. Those factors are important, but they're not the only things we need to understand.
4: Uh, when you are, uh, let's say, dividing this uh, moments application or emergency system, uh, you think about, like, uh, what will be the outcome for the future uh, when you are migrating uh, the system to another newer, uh, better systems, because the factors also depends on not only like three uh, problem consumer context, but in the future, how you would like to support.
0: This is the reason that I wanted to talk about APIs within the context of legacy technology, because sometimes the challenge with migrating to a newer platform or a newer system isn't a technical problem. It's a human problem.
1: Hmm. Wait, say explain that a little bit. I don't Yeah.
0: So we have a situation here where we have the solution, right? APIs are a great way to have two different systems talk to each other. Okay. Right? There are problems with API security that obviously need to be addressed if you have leaky apis if you know like there's the people who are building it there's a lot of episodes we have in our back catalog that you can listen to that have the same kind of refrain uh the people are building it are not building it with security in mind then obviously you're going to have people who take advantage of that bad actors right but in this situation it's intriguing that the the people who are affected the the patients the healthcare providers they are fighting back against modernization for reasons that are, you know, on on paper and at at face value quite valid because they're not sure about the guardrails. They're not sure about who's going to have access to data, and even though there are governments and organizations that are trying Mm. to work out what these modernization efforts look like, they don't have all the answers up front. And when you don't have all the answers up front with something as sensitive as heart surgery,
2: that's kind of um, (laughs) concerning. (laughs) That is concerning. But think about technology usually. Technology usually progresses. Everybody jumps on Mm. it. And they don't think about these things. This is one of those scenarios where, yes, the technology has taken off. It's been around for a while. It's prolific. But we're trying to use it in this new and different use case where mm. the rules are different. Mm. This is mm-hmm. really, like you said, it's a human problem. You're dealing with such critical information. How do you reframe the way yeah. you build and interact when something is such a high value. Mm. Uh, and I wonder if that's a different thought process. Um, yeah. you know, I wonder if I, that makes you think about it differently. Just yeah. a question.
1: I think when we started this episode, I, th- I was thinking maybe uncritically about this because I was like, oh, modernization, that's good. Of course. Yeah, yeah, of, of course, course of you course. know, like of course we should use like APIs to like solve this really important problem. Like, of course. Yeah. Like modernization equals good. (laughs) You know, again, I was thinking very uncritically. I think what I'm having trouble like making sense of in my mind is I want to keep the optimism that I had at the beginning of this episode. You know, like I want to be optimistic about solving important problems with technology. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I want to be critical about the way I'm doing it. (laughs) You know, like, and sometimes I don't know how to hold those two things together because it's so easy to slide into like pessimism and paralysis. Mm. You know, how how do you think critically while also remaining optimistic?
2: Good question. Angela, what do you think? (laughs) (laughs) I'm okay. So I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I am hopeful, but. I am very terrified. This is one of those things where rushing to modernize can mm. definitely have its downside. Yeah. And for those folks who are rallying against this type of modernization, it's because their lives are at risk. Yeah. And there's very few things that we do on the Internet where our lives are at risk. Mm. And this really does just change my perspective mm. in how technology is being used. I know that there are amazing companies out there working to solve this very problem. Mm. But again, I'm one of those wait and see type of people because mm. we cannot and we should not want to rush into this without having done a lot of due diligence and there is no totally impenetrable system that it doesn't exist. You know, that's why there are bugs. That's why things happen, mm-hmm. vulnerabilities happen. You know, so can we promise? Mm-hmm. Question mark.
1: Never. Right? There's always some risk, right?
0: I think that in the situation or situations like this, fear is healthy because it means you care.
2: Okay, I can live with that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Yeah, fear is healthy. If you're a technologist and you have fear, you have hesitation, that's good because it means that you care about the end goal. You care about the people who are involved and impacted by the things that you make.
1: As long as you don't let it paralyze you. No, of course. No, no.
2: Of course. You do move forward.
1: You still have to move forward. With yeah. caution. With caution.
2: With, with extreme caution. Kim, I'm really
1: curious. So, so We've been talking about APIs in the context of healthcare, Mm -hmm. and we have been talking about how maybe sometimes modernization, we might want to be cautious about it. Hmm. What can this teach us about other contexts, specifically with like modernization?
0: For me, working on this episode taught me a lot about expectations and the kind of expectations we have with technology when we are just consuming the technology, when we create the technology. And I feel like there's certain expectations on all sides that are manageable, and then there are ones that may not reflect the reality. Jamie said something about pushing things fast and breaking things, and pushing and breaking things fast are part of whether we like it or not, modern day tech culture. But that doesn't translate very well into something like healthcare. And I feel like the most important thing for people to take away from all of this, because these are questions that we're still, they don't have answers. They're still, you know, things are still being debated and and still going through discussion going through legislative bodies, through through governments. I think the biggest takeaway from all of this is keeping in mind that sometimes humanity has to catch up with what we can do technically. Mm. I'll say that again. Oh Yeah. There it is. Sometimes humanity has to catch up with what's technically possible. And as long as we keep that in mind and are empathetic to the people who are most impacted on the apps that we build, on the APIs that we are working on, on the systems that we maintain, we'll all be better off for it.
2: What do you think about our API issue in the context of legacy technologies? Is it really the panacea for app modernization for older technologies that we think it is? I would love to hear your thoughts about this and on all the other cool things we talked about today. Please hit us up on social media at Red Hat using the hashtag Compiler Podcast. We would love to hear from you. you. <laughs>
1: And that does it for this episode of Compiler.
2: Today's episode was produced by Kim Wong and Caroline Craighead.
1: A big thank you to our guests, Jamie Becklin and Bober Umertzikov.
2: Victoria Lawton is a natural-born communicator. Just don't ask her to send you a fax.
1: <laughs> our audio engineer is Christian Proholm. Special thanks to Sean Cole. Our theme song was composed by Mary Anchetta.
2: Our audio team includes Lee Day, Stephanie Wunderlich, Mike Esser, Nick Burns, Aaron Williamson, Karen King, Jared Oates, Rachel Ortel, Devin Pope, Matias Fowndes, Mike Compton, Ocean Matthews, Paige Johnson, and Alex Tribulsi.
1: If you like today's episode, please follow the show. Uh, rate us, leave a review, share it with someone you know. It really does help us out.
2: Take care, everybody. Until next time. All right. See you next time. We'll fax you.